The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Ms. Kristen Schaefer. She is the former executive director of the Pesticide Action Network, which is headquartered in Berkeley, California. The Pesticide Action Network is a nonprofit organization with a mission to end reliance on hazardous pesticides and achieve real health, resilience, and justice in food and farming. I think that Ms. Schaefer's background is especially important to note here because before joining the Pesticide Action Network, Kristen worked for the World Resources Institute's Sustainable Agriculture Program as a communications specialist for the Environmental Protection Agency and as an agroforestry extension officer in Kenya. And prior to stepping in as executive director, Kristen was the Pesticide Action Network's program and policy director. She has held many roles over the years, including coordinating the International Persistent Organic Pollutants Campaign under the Stockholm Convention, as well as the global campaign to phase out methyl bromide under the Montreal Protocol. Kristen has been the lead author on several Pesticide Action Network reports, including Chemical Trespass, Pesticides in Our Bodies and Corporate Accountability, Nowhere to Hide, Persistent Toxic Chemicals in the U.S. Food Supply, and she also co-authored both A Generation in Jeopardy and Kids on the Front Line, which featured how pesticides in particular affect our precious children. Kristen co-chairs the board of VeggieLution, an urban farm and food justice organization in her hometown of San Jose, California. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you have been with the Pesticide Action Network for 25 years, and that is a considerable length of time. And what I wanted to do is, because you have recently left that position, I wanted to get your insight over those decades of time. But I think first we should start with what led you to the Pesticide Action Network? What was it about this organization that interested you? Well, thanks for that question. I um, had been working on the East Coast. We were in Washington, D.C., and and I was working with World Resources Institute, as you mentioned, on sustainable agriculture issues. And we moved out to California, actually back to California, which is where I mostly grew up. And uh, PAN was one of the organizations kind of in the field that drew me because of the commitment to food justice and to also connection to the global community and the fact that PAN is part of this international network that really sees the connections and the importance of the connections, how our food system relates from country to country and around the world and, and how collaboration is needed across boundaries to make the changes we need. Well, you put together a three-part blog before you left the Pesticide Action Network, and it reviews your story as well as the wonderful people and the work that you've done. 
And one of the things that you bring out is that this work requires a great deal of diligence and persistence. You know, we don't ban pesticides overnight, even though we've got really good science showing that they hurt children's brains. How were you able to keep that momentum going? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that in doing the blogs and that reflection, that theme of, of persistence was really key and has been throughout the effort that I had been involved with in my tenure at PAN. I think the question of how to keep going is, one, to celebrate the milestones when you get them. Examples of that, as you're very familiar with the neurotoxic chemical chlorpyrifos, which is very harmful to children's developing brains. And that was, we won a ban starting in Hawaii at the state level, then California, then New York. It sort of built the momentum to win a ban at the national level. And and actually, we just recently learned that chlorpyrifos is now moving forward under the Global Stockholm Convention and maybe moving toward an international ban. So that, you know, it's building that momentum, celebrating those milestones, and being in partnership with the people who are directly affected by these chemicals because that underscores the importance of the work, the urgency of what we're trying to create in terms of an alternative vision of the food system. Yeah. Well, you're an excellent writer, an excellent communicator, and I wanted to ask you your thoughts about what are the best tools to relay the science. I've always questioned is science, science is important, absolutely. But numbers and statistics and facts from scientific studies don't seem to be able to move the dial as much as some of these heartbreaking stories. And I wanted to get your opinion on how we can best communicate the urgency in getting these bills passed that would ban these horribly toxic pesticides. Yeah. That's a great question. And I have to say, again, in the mode of kind of reflecting back over the years, that the tools of communication have changed over time, right? I think PAN was early on kind of cutting edge with our, we had a PAN-UPS newsletter, you know, that kind of summarized science and policy developments. And and that became at some point outdated. And then you move to something else to kind of use the tools that are relevant to people in the moment. In the past year, for example, Pan now has an Instagram account. And so that's just in terms of the tools. But in terms of the message, I think the combination of translating that science, the work that Pan does is deeply, firmly rooted in science. And it has to be because there's plenty of science to make the case that pesticides are harmful. So there's no need to try to stretch that information. It's the truth. But translating that into, in ways that people can understand, whether that's graphs or using images, and then complementing that with, as you say, personal stories that really illustrate this family was affected by chlorpyrifos drift in Minnesota, and this has been the outcome for their child that was exposed by this drift incident, you know, when they were an infant, and really using those stories to make the um, evidence real, to ground that science in people's lives and experience. And that definitely is much more powerful. And that's something we've tried to do both using social media tools, using, as I said, Instagram and, and our blog, 
and Twitter and so on, but also bringing voices into policymaking platforms like the UN spaces that we go to, bringing folks who are directly affected to speak in those forums, bringing people to briefings in Sacramento here in California, you know, in capitals around state capitals around the country and Washington, D.C. And I think that storytelling is what people remember and is a way in to really understand a very complex issue, but that really is, when you break it down, it's simple. We don't need to be using these really dangerous chemicals. Here are the harms they cause, and here are the alternatives that we need to put in place. And consumers, as well as dietitians, are often told by industry representatives that we need these chemicals to feed the world, and that if we choose an organic system, that we're going to have shortages on yields. But that really isn't the truth, is it? It's not. And there are many, again, scientific studies documenting in different parts of the world, including in the United States, documenting systems that have shifted away from chemical inputs or never used chemical inputs that have comparable production or, in some cases, higher. And I think one of the things to keep in mind Two, a couple of things. One is there is also a lot of really strong evidence that farming that does not rely on chemicals, that relies on healthy soils and management of pest populations in more sustainable ways, is much more resilient to the shocks of climate change. There's evidence of this from around the world, whether it's droughts or floods or that just those systems are able to recover much more quickly than these chemical intensive systems, which are actually really fragile. And the other point I would make about that kind of cost argument that, you know, people need to to uh, have access to, we need to keep the production systems as they are to feed the world, et cetera, is that so many of the actual costs of that production are externalized, right? The cost of losing our pollinator populations, the costs of water pollution, the health costs associated with exposure to these chemicals, whether it's the farmers themselves, the the farm workers, the rural communities that are exposed to these chemicals, those are all costs that are not captured in the actual cost of food because it's subsidized by these incentives that drive the chemical use. And so, you know, I think what PAN's work has been is shining a light on on that and also on the systems that are working as alternatives and so that there's a model that we can move toward and really transform what our system of food and farming. Mm, I agree with you. In the first part of your three-part blog series, Reflections, you brought forth a really important point, and that is for those of us who raise questions about safety and health, we are often portrayed as troublemakers or fear mongers. You know, we're trying to steer up fear and somehow we're going to be cashing in on it. And I bring that point up because of what you just said about who's really paying the costs of putting these toxins on our environment. And that's a very troubling position to be in when you're being told by nice industry representatives, just rely on facts and don't be a fear monger. But if we are paying attention to the facts, we should be very much afraid. And afraid and also, you know, determined, I would say. 
And and let me just say that I so enjoyed the putting time and, and energy into those reflection blogs. It was really fun for me to sort of look back and do some pondering about what are some of the lessons and, and the themes that I've seen over the last 25 years. And yeah, the first blog was the first thing that came to mind as I did that reflecting was just the challenge that we face coming up against the corporate entities that are benefiting from the current system and the resources that they have to spin the message, to buy the billboards, to, you know, I mean, they have whole departments that are all about messaging this kind of feed the world story and um, ensuring people that, oh, our products are safe and so on. And, And it's a lot to go up against. And it also is you know, if you think about it, it's pretty clear that these are the folks that are benefiting financially from the current system. So they are very motivated to push back against the kind of changes that we seek. And I think that's actually a really simple message. It's kind of a follow the money, you know, right. message is like, why are these folks pushing so hard to keep Corpirifos on the market or to keep Dicamba, you know, these really very clearly dangerous chemicals out there is because they're making profits. You know, and it's not that farmers need them or want them or are pushing for them. The farmers, again, are getting this information from these corporations. But, I mean, we work with a lot of farmers. Pan has worked over the years with many farmers in the Midwest, in California, and other states that are pretty tired of not having control over their inputs and seeing this pesticide treadmill, right? where, oh, we're using this chemical and, oh, surprise, there's resistance that develops, whether it's weeds or insects, and so now we need the next more toxic chemical, and um, and farmers are frustrated by that. So it really is the pesticide industry, you know, that's pushing so hard to keep this chemical-intensive system in place. Exactly. Let me take one break, Kristen, because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Kristen Schaefer, former executive director of the Pesticide Action Network, headquartered in Berkeley, California. I want to go back and touch on something that you mentioned, and that has to do with just the power of the industry. And again, drawing from your excellent, thoughtful, and insightful three-part blog series, which I will provide a link to for our listeners. You also bring up the issue of state preemption. So when consumers become aware and therefore activated or determined to take some sort of action to protect their communities and their water and their children, they may run up against a roadblock, which is this state preemption of pesticide regulation. Tell me what that is. Yeah, this is actually a result of a very intentional campaign many years ago, again, that the pesticide industry invested in to get rules passed at the state level in state houses across the country that said that local communities could not have rules that were more protective than the state rules when it comes to pesticide use. So that's what state preemption means. So The way that there are a handful of states that did not have that preemption, but they're few and far between. And so what that means is if a local community is concerned about pesticide use and how it's affecting their children's health or how it's affecting pollinators in their community, and they organize and get a a local bill passed, a local ordinance passed that 
puts limits on specific pesticides or disallows use of pesticides in public spaces, in parks, in public buildings, that that in many states is not allowed because of the state preemption. And so it's actually something that part of our organizing in Minnesota, for example, has been to push back against that state preemption rule. And there's been some good progress there where it hasn't yet passed. Again, it mobilized a lot of industry opposition, but really widespread support among various groups that really see the benefit of local control around these issues that affect public health. So so we'll see. I think there, there's, there's a bit of a movement to push back against that state preemption, which is really encouraging. And one example of how it is can be powerful to move things at the local level is in Canada, where there are many localities, they don't have the state preemption, and there are communities across that country who have disallowed the what's called cosmetic use of pesticides. So pesticides can't be used in lawns or on in public parks um, because of these known health effects. So it can make a huge difference if local communities are able to move forward some of these measures. Mm. So I love that we're talking about this whole preemption issue and regulation because the chemical industry loves to complain about regulation. They don't want to be regulated. And yet here they are preventing individual local communities from having self-control and power where we are in a sense being regulated to not be able to protect ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. It is a little ironic. <laughs> you put it that way, isn't it? Yeah, it does. And again, I think the one of the ways when you talked earlier about sort of messaging and how to share this information in ways that are effective and we talk about regulation is really safety measures. When you talk about how regulations on these pesticides that are known to cause these devastating harms to human health, whether it's cancer or neurodevelopmental harms or, you know, and so what the industry calls regulation and regulatory overreach is really common sense safety measures, whether it's restricting use of those chemicals so that it's minimized or whether it's getting some of those chemicals off the market because they're just too toxic. And that's really common sense public safety. Yeah, that's a great way to define the word regulation and to shift it from a negative connotation to a positive one. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about your time at EPA because in the fall of 2021, you wrote an excellent article for the newsletter that the Pesticide Action Network puts out. It's called The Catalyst. And the title of this was Kick Corporations Out of the EPA. And you mentioned just how much corporate influence buys decisions at the very organization that is designed to protect our environment. Do you want to share any specific stories from that experience that you had? Sure. Well, I, two things come to mind. One, which is one of the things I think I mentioned in that article, was as an experience as an advocate with Pam coming to EPA together with some farm worker advocates to their office in, out, right outside of D.C. and Virginia to have a meeting and talk about the status of Corpyrifos and the worker protection standard and atrazine and et cetera. 
And as we were on our way up to the big conference room, the head of the office who was hosting us, you know, we were in the elevator and he kind of turns to us and, you know, says, oh, so nice to see you folks. We meet with industry people all the time. (laughs) And it was just so striking that he didn't even realize that what he was saying and what that means in terms of who has a seat at the table and who has influence over the decisions they're making every day that influence the lives of millions of people across the country. So that's one incident that comes to mind. And then the other was from, again, years ago, I worked at EPA. It was actually in a different issue area. It was in the Office of Solid Waste, so it wasn't specifically on pesticides. But I always say that two lessons I learned through that experience that were really valuable were what makes things move within the agency, right? Like, what is it that moves the bureaucracy, which is big and lumbering? And the two lessons I learned, one are court deadlines, make things move at EPA, and the other are requests from Congress. They come in a yellow folder, or they used to, I don't know if they still do, but congressional requests, CRs they call them, really that there's an accountability that the agency has to respond to that request. So both of those lessons were valuable, you know, as I moved into the world of advocacy and knowing, okay, being involved in various lawsuits and keeps that pressure on EPA as well as the organizing and building power in different states across the country that, you know, whether we're collecting signatures and petitions or holding meetings with EPA, that that combination of things has moved the conversation forward within the agency. So as health advocates, our job is definitely to reach out to our congressional representatives. However, I am concerned about it's a balancing act. So on the one hand, our representatives may hear from a consumer or a healthcare provider who is concerned about a particular pesticide. But on the other hand, you've got the industry also contacting Congress with big checks And maybe their own science. Are enough people questioning who owns any specific scientific report that comes on their desk? Well, I think the answer is no. (laughs) And I think that goes to a conversation that Pan is engaged with, together with many other advocates who have worked on pesticide policy issues over the years, about the need at EPA specifically for a culture shift within the Office of Pesticide Programs specifically, that basically over the years, the culture has become a sense of being accountable more to industry than to public health, that their job is to, you know, move these requests through the process to get these new chemicals approved, and that that's kind of the focus and the purpose of that office, rather than the focus and purpose of that office being asking those questions about where that science is coming from and whose interests are reflected there and how do we best prioritize decisions that are really going to protect our children and communities across the country and farm workers who are on the front lines of exposure to these dangerous chemicals. And so that's a conversation, you know, I think that the Biden administration is more open to those conversations and being in dialogue with various stakeholders but it will take time to make that shift within the agency. But I think it's critical that that accountability to the pesticide industry is is shifted to accountability to public health and the environment. Right. Now, you mentioned in the second blog post that you wrote 
the Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act, and that's Senate Bill 3283. And you encourage us to reach out to our senators. You even make it easy. The Pesticide Action Network has great action alerts and ways to get in touch with our representatives. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about that particular act and what would you like our listeners to know? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for lifting that up. It's PACTPA, which is, I'm not, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but, <laughs> but that's the acronym, the Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act, is a really important piece of legislation. Basically, the rules that govern pesticide use in the United States are based on a really old piece of legislation, FIFRA, and that legislation is from the 1940s and has been updated by sort of piecemeal here and there, but again, is has not been, doesn't reflect what's now understood about the science of pesticides. So the PACTPA legislation would be a long overdue and much needed full-blown reform of how we approach pesticide regulation in the United States. And it would, a couple of just key highlights that were, would be really important and, and impactful is it would look to actually eliminate a whole class of chemicals called organophosphates, which the chlorpyrifos is one, and many of the other chemicals in that class have very similar health impacts. It would also eliminate neonicotinoids, which are very well known to be destroying our pollinator communities. And also, there's recent science that there are human health effects that's emerging. And so it would first off the bat, remove both of those known really dangerous types of chemicals from the U.S. market. It would also set up a system where we're paying more attention to decisions that are made in other countries when, for example, in Europe, when a pesticide is restricted or taken off the market, that would trigger a review in the U.S. because obviously that's based on science, you know, a scientific process that they've taken and they've taken a a protective decision. And so there would be more accountability and learning from what's happening in other countries to protect communities from pesticides. So it would be, it would be a, a huge step forward to have PACTPA in place. And so I know PAN is going to be working over the course of 2022 to do some organizing with children's health advocates and farm worker advocates and others to build momentum for that legislation. Great. Well, I will provide the website so our listeners can learn more about that legislation and so much more from your website. And that's www.panna.org. That stands for the Pesticide Action Network of North America. Kristen, we just have a minute left. Is there anything that you want our listeners to know before we have to close? Yeah, thanks for that. I think... I would share that there is reason for hope. Uh, I think that there is, again, reflecting over the 25 years, I've seen such a shift in the level of knowledge and engagement around food and how much people care about where their food comes from and how it's grown, and so many more people translating that into not just what they shop for you know, and, and where they put their dollars, but also getting involved. And I think that really is the key to making the kind of change that we need to make. Mm, Very good advice. 
We've got to close, so I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Kristen Schaefer. She is the former executive director of the Pesticide Action Network, which is headquartered in Berkeley, California, but does work internationally to protect human health and our environment. Kristen, thank you so much for your time today and all of your work at PANA. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's been my pleasure to talk with you.